Good morning again. Three weeks ago, I said in these four Sundays, I'd like to speak to you about four things that have shaped me. The first week I spoke with you about enough, sufficient, that his grace is enough for whatever. Last week we talked about miracles and had the illustration of Helen Keller and so forth. This week I want to talk with you about trust. You say, oh no, I've heard a thousand messages on trust, on faith. Well, you're going to hear a thousand and one. It's the essence of who we are. You say, I'm not a very trusting person. Well, I know you're trusters because you came in and sat down on those chairs. Those are the same chairs that you sat on last week if you were here or the week before. And, but somebody could have come in and swapped them out for balsa wood chairs and you came in and bam, down you go. So in, it's intrinsic in us, inherent in us to trust. It was January the 8th, 1956, a few years back. I was 13 years old. I wouldn't turn 14 until March. We were listening to the radio at breakfast. We didn't have a TV yet because in the 50s, mid-50s, TVs were just coming on. And the announcer said, the news reporter said, five young men have been killed in Ecuador on the Rio Cururay, five young missionaries been speared to death by the Alca Indians. It's these five. These are the Alca five. Roger Udarian, early 30s, former paratrooper in the Second World War. Pete Fleming, academic type, sort of heady. And Jim Elliott, little all-American wrestler, never pinned in four years of wrestling matches at Wheaton College. Brilliant guy from Oregon. Used to work, I think, in, up in the woods during the summer times. And Jim uh, studied classical Greek at Wheaton, so he'd like smart guy. He would memorize scripture standing in the cafeteria line, and but got in trouble for playing like he was drunk and th- falling through the hedge in front of the academic dean's house. So he's like all American guy. <laughs> Nate Saint, jungle pilot. He flew them in to the place where they died. <clears throat> Ed McCulley. Uh, All-American football player for Wheaton. All of the four of the five were in their 20s. All of them were married, and they had a covenant. They were going into these tribal people, Stone Age tribal people, called the Alca, which is, I think, savage in Spanish, knowing they might die. They knew that, and they had an agreement that even though they were carrying weapons, that would be for the killing of meat or whatever, but they wouldn't fire in anger. And all five of them died that day, speared by the Indians. When you're 13 years old and you hear that stuff, it's not romantic particularly, but it is totally impacting. A whole generation of people my age went into missions because of those five, if you will, and their wives. One of the wives, Betty Elliott, went in with their two-year-old daughter for a year and a half with a with the sister of the pilot, Rachel Saint, and most of the Alcas started following Jesus. Elizabeth Elliot came back to the States with her little daughter, but Rachel stayed there her whole life and is buried in a village in the interior of Alca territory in Ecuador in the Amazon. I read I read Elizabeth's books, Through Gates of Splendor, Shadow of the Almighty. Some of you are old enough to have read those books. 
One about Nate Saint was called Jungle Pilot, but it, these were just, I mean, it just fired your imagination. And so in the 1980s, when I was president of this little college down in California, I got a call one day saying, Elizabeth Elliot's going to be in San Jose. Would you like to have her for a chapel guest? I mean, I'm on, I'm on top of the world. I said, absolutely. And so she came, and she's in her 60s by now. I have the student body sing a chorus before she comes to speak. Lord, I love... Lord, I want to love you more. You're so easy to adore. Lord, I want to love you more. Introduced Elizabeth Elliot. She's this casually elegant woman from New England. She stood up and the first words out of her mouth were, you need to be very careful about the songs you sing. And I'm going, oh man, I wish we'd have sung like over a thousand tongues or come the fount of every, some anthem, some church hymn, you know, and she said, because it is easy to adore him, it's just tough to follow him. And then for the next 30 minutes, she talked to our student body about sex. Because God lives in the real world, not in some fantasy world. And how I follow him and where I live is challenging. And so when she came to my office afterwards, we were talking and she, had had, she was on her third husband, if you will, Jim Elliott had been martyred in the in Alka territory. The second husband, Addison Leach, a professor in a seminary, had died of cancer. And now she was married to a gentleman who's a businessman from Boston. And I turned to her and said, Elizabeth, what's the essence of following Jesus? Like, what's the essence of your life in Jesus? And she looked at me without batting an eye. It was like a knee-jerk reflex. She just looked at me and said, trust, Dick. What else is there? Everything runs by trust, doesn't it? I mean, you know that. Everything runs by trust. Nothing works without it. Businesses don't work without it. The military doesn't work without it. Governments don't work without it. That's why governments are in such trouble. Families don't work without it. Your relationship with your friends or your spouse don't work without trust. Trust, is, trust and respect are at the heart of every and any relationship. If you don't have those two things, it won't work. And trust is what makes your interior life work, your relationship with God, your relationship with others. Jesus, in speaking to the subject, has this fascinating image that he uses. Jesus is on his way to the cross. He's about two weeks out, by most estimates. If this were a map of Israel and this is, or Palestine, and, and this is the Mediterranean Ocean, you've got the Jordan or the... Um, Sea of Galilee up here, the Jordan River, the Dead Sea, and he came down the Jordan River rift, if you will, and took a 45 on his way to Jerusalem. He'd come through Jericho and climbed several thousand feet going up to Jerusalem. But as he came through Jericho, several things happened, and you can read this in the middle chapters in Luke and in Matthew and here in Mark that I'm about to read. As he comes through Jericho, he has several engagements with people. People come to him. One blind Bartimaeus screaming by the side of the road, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Or this guy named Zacchaeus, this little short guy who's a ripoff artist in town, up a tree out on a limb. You know, you ever been there? And then apparently young moms, it doesn't say young moms, but I think it's probably right, bring their children to Jesus to bless them. And that's where we pick up the text in Mark 10, Verse 13 through 16. Listen to how it reads. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. Now, you have to understand, you know, don't be too hard on the disciples. Because in their day, women and children were chattel property. They didn't count, right? 
So they're just doing the cultural thing. But Jesus' response is interesting. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant, ticked, if you will. If you want to make God mad, try to keep little kids away from it. And he said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. He said, these kids are the shareholders. They're the stakeholders, and they got investment property in the kingdom. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. That's tough talk. That's not baby Jesus, meek and mild. This is in your face, hardcore Jesus. Except whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms, blessed them, laying his hands on them. Point one today, trust has the face of a child. Trust has the face of a child. We have four kids, Ruth and I, and 11 grandkids. And when our kids were small, they're all in their 40s now, but when they were small, we had interesting little incidents that happened. And when I'm thinking about, you know, the first time I really read this text was a long time ago. I read it hundreds of times now. But I'm thinking about our kids. What quality would Jesus be talking about when he talked about except you be like a child? And I'm thinking, like our daughter, who's, who's now a pastor's wife, lives in Eugene, has four of her own children, Erica. When she was 10, we were driving through Urbana, Illinois, where we lived. We had planted a church at the University of Illinois. We're driving along. She's 10 years old. I said, Erica, what do you want to be when you grow up? And she looked at me and grinned and said, I don't know, Dad. What do you want to be? Well, smart mouth kid, you know what? Maybe it's, maybe it's that kids are direct. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's the thing he's looking Or maybe it's because they're always learners. I mean, preschoolers are absorbing knowledge through their pores. I mean, unbelievable how little kids learn. And Chris, our son who will be 42 in a couple of weeks, he's like four years old or something. He comes into the front room and said, Dad, I want you to help me with my numbers. I said, what do you want me to do? He said, I want to add to 10. I said, okay. What's two plus three? And he looks at his hands because he thinks those are his limits. He's got 10 digits, two plus three. Five. I said, what's five plus two? He looked at his hands. I said, seven. I said, what's seven plus two? He looked at his hands. I said, nine. I said, what's 10 plus two? He looked at his hands. I said, I can't tell you that. I said, how come? He said, because I'd have to have 12 fingers to tell you that. I'm saying, my kid, the rocket scientist, you know, he, he didn't know that he knew, but he knew, you know. Maybe it's just because kids are winsome. Sometimes they just say stuff, do stuff that's off the wall. They just catch you. I walked in one day and Susanna, who's now, she lives in California. She's got three boys, 13, 11, and 9, and we feel she deserves it. And, and she, she was our wild kid. She wasn't bad, but she was just off the wall. She did, did stuff all the time and high energy, and she's an author now. And, but uh, I came in one day. She's about six, and she's lying on the linoleum by the washing machine in the laundry. I said, Sue, what are you doing? She said, nothing, which is like a dead giveaway when you got a little kid. I said, Susanna, stand up. When she stood up, from under her shirt right here came the head of a little kitten right here. And I said, Susanna, you know the rule, no cats, no cat. Now, for those of you who are cat lovers, I apologize. It's not biblical what I'm saying, but I'm a dog guy pretty much. You know, they, they lick you and they're loyal and stuff. And cats, you don't know where they are. People say, we own a cat. And I say, baloney. Yeah. 
Nobody owns a cat. The cat may own you, but you don't own the cat. They just do whatever. But anyway, I, so don't, this is not like God talking right here, this part. It, well, even in the other part, it's probably not God talking. But, but the point is, here's this cat. And mom had been complicit. They'd been coming out of Safeway. Somebody's giving away a litter of cats. They get one. It's this little cute little kit. And I said, Susanna, you know the rule. No cats. And she looks at me, and she's got brown eyes. She opened those big eyes, and she said, he was a stranger, and I took him in. <laughs> well, like, don't you hate it when they quote scripture to you? That's you. People come to me and say, did you keep the cat? Yes, we kept the cat. It was white. We called it Nanook of the North or something. I don't know. But the fact is, it might be the directness. It might be the always learning part. It might be the winsomeness. But Luke uses the word babies in this text. These were babes in arms. Well, babies can't do anything. I mean, they cry and they go to the bathroom and they eat, but that's it. They can't clothe themselves or sing arias or do play the drums or whatever. They can't do anything. They can't walk. They, babies are absolutely dependent. I think Jesus is saying, unless you are absolutely dependent on me, you don't get in. The stakeholders are people who depend on me who get it. See, and my tendency is to say, you know, Jesus, I got this stuff. Why don't I cover this? And you can have these two things over here because I don't get that. But I, I think I got this handled. And he says, no, I want you absolutely dependent on me. Doesn't mean you shouldn't work. Doesn't mean you don't have energy and stuff or do your part. But it puts me in tension because when I'm eight years old and I do something dumb, some adult in my history would say, oh, Dick, grow up. So I work like crazy to grow up. No, I'm an old cat, and we, you know, we have the responsible thing. We own our house with the bank, and we got kids and grandkids, so I'm responsible, um, hopefully mature. And, and here I am trying to be mature for decades, and Jesus comes along and says, oh, Dick, be a baby. What do you do with that? I think it works like this. I think it's when I'm a baby, an absolutely dependent person on Jesus, I can be an adult with you. I can be mature with you. You can take my word to the bank. You can understand that when we make an agreement, I'll keep it. You can understand that when I say I'll pray for you, I'll pray for you. And it's not a tension I have to live in, but it's a complementary understanding that I need to have. The degree to which I am more of a child is the degree to which I'm more of a responsible adult. So, but you say, how does that work? Hebrews, the 11th chapter in the New Testament is interesting. We call it the faith chapter because it lists all these great people of faith. This is how it reads in Hebrews 11, 5 through 8. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was not found because God had taken him. This is a guy who trusted God so much that God just snatched him. He said, you know, you're trusting me, just come on. Now, I'm still here. The Enoch got snatched. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And the question is, how do you please God? Well, the text answers it. Without trust or faith, same word, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe two things. One, that he exists. And two, that he rewards those who seek him. So if you want to please God, trust him. And believe, trust him in these two ways. That he exists and that if you follow him, the response to you will be positive. By faith, Noah... 
being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Here's a guy who took decades, like 100 years, to build an ark, and he's not near an ocean. He's near a river, but he's not near an ocean. It's quite a story. You can read it in the Old Testament. Verse 8, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. So he went out not knowing where he was going. He lived in Haran, which is over by Baghdad. Okay, so you're in Iraq over here. And God says, I want you to go over here to Palestine, up over what is called the Fertile Crescent. And you don't know this place, but I'm, I'll be with you. So, so here's Abraham, who's a big business guy in his town. He's got properties, he's got holdings, he's got animals, he's got camels and donkeys, he's got cousins and uncles and aunts, and he's taken everybody. You know, it's a tribal deal. And so if Rotary International had been in play, I'm sure the president of Rotary would meet him on the edge of town and say, hey, where are you going with all your stuff? Where are you, where are you going? And I can hear him say, I don't know. It says he didn't know where he was going. Well, what are you going to do when you get there? I don't know. I don't know is a tremendous faith statement. You see, if you're ultimately following Jesus, you know where that ends. In the short term, you don't always know where following him takes you. The question is not where are you going, the question is with whom are you traveling? It's an old gospel song that says, if Jesus goes with me, I'll go anywhere. That's the core, that's the key idea. So, point two, is that faith or trust only works in the dark. If you can see where you're going, or if you know where you're going, you don't need Jesus to help you. You got it all scooped out. You got the business plan. You got the strategic paper. You got, you're good. You don't need God for that. But the fact is, trust only works in the dark. Some years ago, I was at a men's retreat couple of hundred guys and we did uh, an exercise some of you have done it's called a trust walk and a trust walk is interesting because you can learn a lot about faith so I'm I'm going to call on my friend right over here Mr. David you trust me a little bit just a little doesn't have to be a lot just a little you take my hand close your eyes I'm going to turn off my mic Now you can imagine doing that with 200 guys. We're out in a grassy area, there's a highway going by, they choose a partner, the 100 teams of two, I have no idea what the motorists thought going by, they're all out there walking around. Pretty soon they said, drop your hands. And they started calling to each other, Harry over here, not over there, Harry over here. See the problem is that you gotta listen for the voice. And there are 99 other voices. 
You know how it is in life. There are a gazillion voices calling for your attention and you're trying to listen to the voice. After about 20 minutes, we called the guys back in and we had a debriefing. I said, tell me when you opened your eyes, when you were following, when you either wanted to open your eyes or you did. And one guy said, <clears throat> I opened my eyes when I felt the tree. <laughs> I said, when you felt the tree? He said, yes. He said, I, the shadow, sunlight, shadow, you know, you can feel shadows in the sunlight. And I opened my eyes and there was a tree, 50 feet over there. But it felt real, so I opened my eyes. How many times in following Jesus, something comes along and it feels like it's really the dominant and it's, it's shadows, it's not the real deal. Somebody else said, when I got directions too late, like that was a log. <laughs> hey, that's not or, or they were too vague, like you're coming to some stairs sometime soon. <laughs> not good. Aren't you grateful for a God who gives you directions that are precise? And he's always on time, even though sometimes we don't think he is. But there was one older gentleman, had to be in his 80s. I didn't think he was going to do this. He, uh, his cheeks were all flushed. He said, that was one of the most exciting things I've done in a long time. Because for once in my life, someone else was responsible for the obstacles. Here's the Jesus who says, when you follow me, when you absolutely trust me like a kid like a little kid, like a baby. I'll take responsibility for the obstacles. Trust only works in the dark. Then there's Hebrews 11.30. It's interesting because you got all the greats. You got Noah, you got Abraham, you got Moses. You got, in this chapter, Enoch, you got all these people. And then you get to verse 30 and it says, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they'd been encircled for seven days. They marched around. And by faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. They'd been checking out the city and they sent a couple of guys in. And these are thick walls. These are big walls in these walled cities, apartments in there. And she's a sex worker, as we would say today. And she hides these guys overnight, these two guys, so they didn't get caught. And then when the walls came down, they, she had hung a rope out the window and her section apparently didn't come down. And... And I'm saying, how did she get in the faith chapter with the, big, with the big guns? How did she get in there? What's that about? Well, it's about trust. I say, yeah, but she didn't like big, build a big boat over 100 years like no. And God's saying, Foth, I didn't need a big boat in Jericho. I just needed somebody to hide a couple of guys overnight. And I'm saying, well, I could do that. See, because point three is faith or trust is doing what you can do, not what you can't. When somebody at the end of a service like this, when I say are there prayer needs and somebody does this, they raise their hand like that, that's called doing what you can do, not what you can't. You can't fix the problem, but you want help with it, and that's a trust thing. When somebody comes down for prayer, it's doing what you can do, not what you can't. When you don't have enough money for the rent, and you're $50 short, but ahead of time you'll send $350. That's doing what you can do, not what you can't, and say the $50, I'm, you know, we'll get. There's something about doing what you can do, not what you can't, that is trusting God. So, my closing story. When we lived in D.C., our second daughter, Jenny, graduated from grad school in the Boston area and came to work for a congressman 
And some of you have heard me share this story before. I love this story. Came to work for a congressman who was a very powerful congressman. And, um, but this particular man has a tremendous heart for Jesus, a tremendous heart for the poor, tremendous heart for human rights situations and religious freedoms around the world. So he would take his chief of staff and they would travel the world to the hard places, to the Bosnia-Herzegovina's when the war was on, for the, the Somalias and the Sudan and places like that. The chief of staff was named Charlie White. Charlie's six foot one, ramrod straight, former Navy submarine captain. He was an uncle to the young people in the office because the hill, Capitol Hill, is populated by hundreds, thousands, if you will, of 20-something young people, the best and the brightest, who write policy for the United States of America. And, they were, and so he was sort of an uncle to that group in, in, his, in the office there. And he hired our daughter, Jenny. On one of their trips overseas, uh, the congressman and Charlie were in Sierra Leone. Some of you have heard about blood diamonds where rebel groups come in and they intimidate villagers and all of that. And they were in a refugee camp where to intimidate villagers, the rebels would come in and put a box with some slips of paper on the ground and say, pull a slip out. And whatever body part was written on that piece of paper, that's what they'd cut off with a machete to intimidate the village. So here was a refugee camp with young mar mothers with no hands or with a leg that was gone or just it was horrific. It was demonic, if you will. Charlie loved the congressman. Charlie admired his courage. He admired his, his uh, leadership, his, his justice causes. He admired all. The part he didn't buy was the Jesus part. He, didn't, he wasn't offended by that. He just didn't, he wasn't there. He, he just didn't buy that. While they were in that camp in Sierra Leone, Charlie felt a severe pain in his hip, went back, had it checked out at Johns Hopkins Medical Center in Baltimore, Maryland, one of the top places in the country. They discovered he had a virulent form of cancer in his hip, and they didn't know if they could stop it, but they thought they might impede it by giving him a hip replacement. So Charlie was at home in Vienna, Virginia, 20 miles west of D.C., and our daughter Jenny had just resigned because she was going to go with a group called World Vision to West Africa. She was flying out on a Monday night, and on Sunday afternoon she said, Dad, I want to see Charlie before I go. I said, okay, we drive in a snowstorm out to Vienna, walk in. We're going to see Charlie for 20 minutes. We end up staying two hours. And uh, at the end of the time, we have a prayer with Charlie, and Jenny hugs him and says she loves him, vice versa. As we walk out, I said, Charlie, can I come back and see you in a few days? He said, be great. The next night, we put Jenny on Air France Flight 28 for Paris and on to Nwakchot, Mauritania, down on the hump of Africa. On Friday, I went back to see Charlie, and when I walked in, the first words out of his mouth were, Dick, I don't think I can do this without God. I said, I'm with you. He said, so what do I do? I said, well, why don't you give your whole life to him? He said, okay. He said, I just got one question. I said, what's that? He said, I haven't paid any attention to God for 64 years. If I come to him now, when there's a chance I could be checking out, isn't he going to be mad? I said, Charlie, you have adult children. What if one of them were estranged from you? And he or she called up and said, Dad, I know that I fouled it up. I know that I've wasted a lot of time with you and stuff, but 
I'd like to come home. If you could forgive me, I'd like to come home and could we hang out and just watch movies and eat popcorn? I'd just like to get to really get to know you because I have. I said, how would you feel about that, Charlie? He said, I'd love it. I said, well, if you as an earthly father feel that way, how much more would a perfect, all-forgiving heavenly father feel? He said, okay, what do I do? I said, why don't we pray? He said, how do you do that? Because if you've never done that, you don't know what that is. I said, well, it's just like talking to me, except you can't see him. I could sense his hesitancy, and I said, would you like me to help you with that, Charlie? He said, be great. I said, well, I'm going to say some phrases that I think you feel, and just follow me out loud in prayer. He said, okay. I said, dear God, this is Charlie. He said, dear God, this is Charlie. And I'm just getting ready to give him the second phrase, and he takes off. Oh, God, I've screwed the whole thing up here, and I just want to tell you that I'm in. And for two minutes, he just dumps it out on the table, and it threw me off. Because, like, I had a pretty good prayer, you know, kind of <laughs> teed up there. Don't you hate it when people just take off and, and tell the truth when you aren't expecting it? You know, they just, he just dumped it. And then he just stopped. He didn't say amen or anything. And we all know it doesn't work if you don't say amen. <laughs> and, he, and he just slid back into the chair, and he looked at me and said, okay, now what? And all of a sudden, he's the sub-captain ready for the mission. I said, you know, Charlie, your wife's prayed for you all these years. She's a lovely lady who flies as an attendant with United First Class to Europe every week. And I said, why don't you tell her what you did? He said, Mary, come in here. And Mary had left and about 30 minutes before, and she walked in. He said, Mary, I have just given my whole life to God through Jesus Christ. I have embraced him fully and willingly under no stress or duress from Dick. See, like when you're a sub-captain or a chief of staff, that's the way you talk. That's, that's how you, and Mary liked that. We talked for a while, had a prayer, I left, and we started coming back to see Charlie every few days. Had a young aide at the time by the name of Joel Schmidgall. He was a big, big strapping guy, about 6'3", and he would come and take Charlie for his radiology treatments and his chemo. At the end of the time, the, the Charlie and Mary wanted to adopt him, you know. And we'd have conversations. And one day I walked in and Charlie said, you know that thing you said about follow, when you follow Jesus, you start seeing people in different ways? I said, yeah. He said, I think that's starting to happen. I said, really? He said, yeah, I woke up this morning. I looked over at Mary. And you know she's a beautiful woman. I said, yes, she is. He said, but it was like I was looking at the Mona Lisa for the first time. I said, did you happen to mention that to her? He said, no. I said, Mary, come in here. <laughs> she loved that Mona Lisa thing. And then one day I walked in and he said, Dick, we need to talk about faith. I said, okay. I said, why? He said, because I don't think I have enough. I said, well, how much do you need? He said, I don't know how much I need. I said, well, what does Jesus say? He said, I don't know what Jesus says I need. I said, Jesus says you need faith the size of a mustard seed. And Middle East mustard is like real fine pepper, just a teens. He'd had his hip replaced. He was sitting there leg up on an ottoman. I said, Charlie, can, can you put any more weight on that chair than you're putting right now? He said, no. I said, then that's the way you trust Jesus. You just pull your, put your full weight on him. He said, oh, okay. Shortest conversation I've ever had on faith in my whole life. I walk out the door that day and I said, God, what's going on here with Charlie? He's this brilliant guy. He, he said, Foth, here's the deal. He's brilliant over here as a sub-captain. He's brilliant as a chief of staff. But over here in his spiritual journey with me, he's a baby. He's a child, and he's going to believe what you tell him 
so you better get it right. We kept having conversations, and one day, Ruth and I got invited to the change of command for a friend of ours. We have a friend. He's the son of an Assemblies of God pastor from Nebraska. He went to a little college back in Springfield, Missouri called Evangel College, and he ended up, at that time, being a three-star admiral what they call Sinkland, Commander-in-Chief of the Atlantic Fleet. That's all of the naval forces and bases from the Mississippi River to the coast of Africa from the North Pole to the South Pole. And uh, President Clinton named him the Chief of Naval Operations, which means now he's a four-star admiral and they're going to change command. So he's going to hand off the fleet and he's going to run the whole Navy. 800,000 military and civilian personnel, $120 billion budget a year. And he's from this little church in this little college. It's, it's amazing. God's grace is sufficient. God does miracles when we trust him. And we got invited to the change of command, and Charlie said, you're going to love that. Where is it going to be? I said, it's going to be at Norfolk Naval Base, largest naval base in the world in Virginia. And uh, it's going to be on the deck of the USS Enterprise aircraft carrier, historic aircraft carrier. And so 600 of us are sitting there on the deck on this July day. And they have a thing in the Navy when they change command where they, the loudspeaker comes on and they blow the bosun's whistle. That's that little whistle that goes wee like that. And then the voice says, attention all hands. And then they announce not the person that's being honored, but the entity that he or she commands. So they got the Navy band. They got two lines of sailors lined up. And um, the whistle, they blow that whistle and it says, attention all hands, Atlantic Second Fleet arriving. And the commander-in-chief of the second fleet comes on board and the band plays and the, the sailors salute. And, and then they said, Atlantic fleet arriving. And our friend Vern Clark comes on and they snap to attention and the band plays. And then they say, United States Navy arriving. And Richard Danzig, at that time, secretary of the Navy, a civilian, because our military is run by civilians, said, United States Navy arriving. And the band plays and they, they salute. I understand that anywhere in the world... Whatever naval vessel, whenever the president of the United States boards that vessel, the whistle blows, that little whistle. They say, attention all hands, United States of America arriving. I had a flash sitting on that deck that day that 2,000 year, years ago in Bethlehem, when Jesus showed up as a baby, it was kingdom of God arriving. Admiral Clark signed a little note to Charlie, said, Dear Charlie, I understand you're in some rough waters, sailor, some tempest-tossed seas. Please know that there are several of us in the fleet who stand with you in prayer during this time. Your friend and brother, Admiral Vern Clark, Chief of Naval Operations. Charlie kept that right on his bedstand. As Charlie's body wasted away because we prayed for healing, all of those things, but it became clear that this was not a marathon for Charlie. This was a sprint to the finish line. And um, as his body wasted away, his spirit became more alive. He became more vibrant. On a June day, I called the congressman and said, Frank, I think we need to go see Charlie. I don't think he has much time. And on a Saturday morning, we walked in, and there he was in hospice care in his bedroom there at the house. He was skeletal, but he was just. He was smiling. We walked in. He said, hi, guys. And then he said, Dick, can you tell me, how does, how does that part work about to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord? Can you, like, explain that to me? I said, Charlie, I, 
I don't think I can explain that to you because I, I haven't done that part yet. <laughs> but all the stuff that I've done in trusting Jesus and following him, all of those pieces, he's been true to his word, so I have every reason to believe that that part will work. And so I think that when it says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, it means to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Like when you, when you come to me, I'm deep. You know, that's just, it probably means what it says, whatever, whatever that looks like. And the congressman said, well, where's that passage where he goes to add on a room and he's coming to get us and all that? I said, that's John 14. He said, find that text, read it and tell us what it means. I said, yes, sir. So I read that. And I said, the idea in the Middle Eastern culture that's described in John 14 is that the, the young man goes off, finds a bride, come back to the family compound. They add a room on and they live there together as family and the father and so forth are there. And I said, that's a metaphor for heaven. That's what it's going to be like. And I think, Charlie, that in a few days, Jesus is going to come and take you there. And he said, uh, I think so too. And I said, you're going to turn around a couple of times and hopefully Frank and I will show up. He said, that'd be great. He said, I'll look forward to that. I said, why don't we have a prayer? I said, okay. And so got the congressman and Charlie's wife and daughter and joined hands around the, babe, the, the, the bed and I said, Congressman, why don't you pray? Here, here are two guys who traveled the world for 16 years. They were brothers. I mean, they'd been in the hard places where bombs were dropping and bullets flying and poverty coming out of here, just terrible places. And the congressman started to pray. He got about three sentences out and he couldn't, he couldn't go on and I finished the prayer. Two or three days later, Charlie died. A few days after that, we stood by his grave at Arlington National Cemetery. It had been a full honors ceremony with the horse-drawn case on with a flag draped casket. And as they folded up the flag and gave it to Mary, his widow, the bugler down at the tree line started playing taps. And I had this flash again standing by his grave that if there were loudspeakers in heaven that might have sounded something like this when Charlie showed up. Attention all hands, Charles Evans Hughes White. United States Navy captain retired, child of God, arriving. Trust only works in the dark. Trust is doing what you can do, not what you can. And trust has the face of a child. 